Amen. All right. Take a seat, Mom. I know Pastor Jeff mentioned to you about uh, Manny Campos. Manny been part of our ministry here, our church, for many, many years. And uh, it was a shock on Friday uh, evening to, to find out what had happened. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just a, a pure accident. Uh, Manny and his son were just coming down the hill and from Highway 70, and evidently a drunk driver was going a high rate of speed, hit Manny in the back of the truck and caused him to fishtail, and in turn he hit another vehicle, and those two vehicles went into the other oncoming, oncoming traffic, and basically a trailer truck uh, ran over uh, the Manny's truck. He was killed instantly, we're told. But the wisdom of God, his 10-year-old son, he didn't put him in the front seat, passenger, put him in the back, and uh, he survived. Uh, he's in Thomason Hospital, and we're going to go visit him sometime this afternoon. But I don't know if they've told uh, their 10-year-old son. You know, it really hurts when it's somebody that you know and you love. Uh, Manny was a good man. And if I could share anything about Manny, he was always busy. Um, we'd have our men's fellowship here on Saturdays. Uh, once a month, our breakfast, and Pastor Jeff would call him. And uh, he says, I'll be there, I'll be there. And always something happening in his life. Manny was going full-time to university, and he was also working full-time. And so when I would talk to him, I'd meet up with him, encourage him, haven't seen you in church for a couple of weeks. And he would always say the same thing. You know, Pastor Bob, I know it's not an excuse, but I'm busy. I'm really busy. And when I'm not at school, I'm at work. And when I'm not at work and at school, I got the family. Uh, his daughter had a baby. And so, you know, my wife and I were talking. And, uh, you know, it's sad, but Manny's not busy anymore. Manny's in the presence of the Lord. And we're going to speak about that this morning our inheritance, but at the same time, Manny left the family. At the same time, he, his wife, and today we're celebrating Mother's Day. We asked the ladies to stand, and I'm thinking of Lupe. What is she going through? I'm sure she doesn't want to celebrate today. It's a very difficult time for her. And some of you, maybe you lost mom already too, and that's a hardship. How can you celebrate, you know? But pray for the Campo family. Uh, in the next week, this coming week, uh, I will be doing the services. And uh, there's a lot of non-believers that always come. And uh, she wants me to preach the gospel, and I will. And that we can touch some of the hearts of the people. Uh, Manny worked for the city of Las Cruces, so I'm sure a lot of city representatives will come and such. But, you know, when I speak at a funeral, when I do a... a a gravesite or do a funeral service, memorial service, we'll give a eulogy, but my purpose is to speak to the living. That's who we need to speak to. The dead are dead. They're either in the presence of God or they've come to the place of judgment. But the living, and when you do a funeral, people are aware, that could be me. 
When we concluded the book of James, James says, we make all these plans. In fact, sometimes we plan ahead, years in advance, and there's nothing wrong with that. But James says, our life is but a vapor of smoke. Our life is but a mist. We're here today. We're gone tomorrow. Paul, writing in the book of Hebrews, it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. And I hope and pray this morning that through Manny's death that we are aware of our life and our death. And are we right with God? We're going to be talking about a group of people that James was speaking to, and now Peter's going to speak to. And these were those that were in this great diaspora. They were scattered. This is the early church. They have been kicked out of the area of Jerusalem and Judea. Peter's going to mention some of the towns that they're in now, some of the areas they're in now. And I want you to imagine what a trial You've been kicked out of your homeland. Mom and dad, jobs, money, everything's gone. And you have to trust God. We see that in third world countries today. And so we are going to speak. James encourages them, our heavenly inheritance. Let's pray. Father, bless this time together this morning. Lord, as we look to you as the author and the finisher of faith, Lord, as we begin this new book, this new epistle, another general epistle, as Peter now is writing to the same group of people, but Lord, speak to our hearts as we can glean from these general epistles. Minister to us, Lord, in the midst of some, uh, somebody from our own fellowship that's passed away. Lord, now we can understand that there is a hereafter, even though we might not believe it. But something happens after our body is dead. The Bible teaches us that our spirit and soul go to be with the Lord. And Peter speaks about this heavenly inheritance. Oh, we've come to salvation and we have such an inheritance already. But imagine eternal life that's waiting for us. And so, Father, speak to our hearts this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible this morning, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. We want to pick up our study in verse 1 to verse 12. Our heavenly inheritance. Now, as we do when we start a new book study, I like to give some introduction. But I want to speak about Peter, first of all. He's a very interesting character. In fact, the scriptures tell us in the book of Acts that he was one of the pillars of the early church. And so he had a position. He had a place. And so when we speak about Peter, I want you to understand that it's very important to know what his name means because there are those that have placed Peter as the first pope of Rome. There are those that put Peter, you know, in a pedestal and they worshiped him. There are those that believe that when we cross the pearly gates that the first one you're going to meet is Peter. I don't know where they come up with this. But when we look at Peter's name in the Greek, his name means Petros. And the word Petros translates to a small stone. That's very important because of what we're going to read in just a minute. But Jesus also called him Simon Barjona. In Matthew 16, 17, Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
Peter had just acknowledged because Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? And then Peter finally responds, you are the Son of God, the Savior of the world. You are the Christos. You are the anointed one. You are the Messiah. And so Jesus tells them, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father, the power of the Holy Spirit, has revealed this to you. And so Peter's declaring Jesus is deity. And then in Matthew uh, chapter 4, verse 18, we, speak, we see here Peter and James, Peter and his brother Andrew, excuse me, not James, Peter and his brother Andrew, and I want you to see this. They were simple fishermen. Peter was just a fisherman. And yet he writes such a profound epistle of First and Second Peter. And there are those scholars that disagree. How could a simple fisherman without any education, how could he write such a powerful epistle? Not just one, but two. But you have to remember something. Back in Acts chapter 2, when Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit, he was never the same after that. He was a changed man. And Peter did know his Old Testament. And so God has qualified him and called him to do this. I pass this up. Not only was he called Peter, Petros, but Jesus also called him Simon or Simeon. And it means uh, he called him Simon Barjona. And so he was saying... Son of Jonah. Interesting how he has this name. But in Mark chapter 1, verse 30, pay attention. It tells us that Peter was married. Mark tells us, and he mentions his mother-in-law, and that she was sickly. And then we know that the Lord healed her. There are those, as I was sharing earlier, that believe that Peter was the first pope of Rome. If so, he was married. And the papacy was never to be married. Now, Peter does give himself a title here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then he says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Interesting. Now, on your own, study Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. We have the 12 apostles. Peter is mentioned there. But I want you to turn to this passage now. It all comes together who Peter is. In Matthew chapter 16, please, we want to pick it up in verse 13. The question has always been placed to me, especially coming from a strong Catholic background, and that is, was Peter the first pope? And then secondly, is the church built upon Peter? And bottom line, when you begin to look at the scriptures, God forbid that the church would ever be built upon a man. If the church is built upon a man, we are in trouble. The church has to be built upon Jesus Christ. You come to Calvary Chapel. Calvary Chapel is not built upon Pastor Bob or Pastor Jeff or Pastor Jay. Calvary Chapel is built upon Jesus Christ. God places us in authority as pastors, elders, deacons. We might even be an, ish, an usher. We might work in the children's ministry. We might be in the back doing the sound ministry. But this ministry belongs to the Lord. And so Peter, can you imagine that they were lifting him up into this pedestal? And the clarification is given here. Look at Matthew 16. Look at verse 13 with me. 
When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Listen to the response here. So they said to Jesus, Some say that you are John the Baptist. Others say that you are Elijah the prophet. And still others, Jeremiah the prophet. Or just one of the prophets. But then Jesus turns the table on them. And he says in verse 15, He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Good question. And that's a question to us this morning. Who do we say that Jesus is? Is he a good man? Is he a good humanitarian? He fed the 5,000, then he fed the 4,000. So Jesus is good to have around when you have a big picnic. Jesus, according to the scriptures, healed many. So what is Jesus to us? Listen to what the response is here. Some said that you were John the Baptist, Elijah, Je Jeremiah, the other prophets. He said it again. Who, is, who, who do you say that I am? Peter steps up. And he answers in verse 16, you are the Christ, the Christos, the anointed one, the Mashiach. That's all the translation for Christ. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. What a statement. And so then Jesus' blood and uh, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. You're a blessed man, Simon Barjona. This came from the Lord. That's what you're declaring. And in verse 18, this is what we're going to speak about. And I also say to you, you are Peter. Remember, Petros, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Let's read the two verses that remain. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should not tell one another that he was Jesus the Christ. Because it was not time for Jesus to be revealed. His death had not come yet. But his death would soon come. But I want you to look at verse 18. Again, I, you know, I never really studied Greek, but I look at my Greek lexicons. I'm no Greek scholar, but a simple look at a good Greek lexicon gives you the insight. And so he says here in verse 18, Jesus says to Peter, you are Peter. The word is Petros. It means small stone. And on this rock, the word rock is Petra, and it means massive stone. I, Jesus Christ, will build my church. God forbid that the church was or still is built upon Peter or upon any man. If the church is built upon a man or a woman, we're in trouble. The church must be built upon Jesus Christ and the scriptures that govern us. But we're so quick to look at history. We're so quick uh, to look at traditional history, I should say. And for the longest time, I was raised in Catholicism and told Peter was the first pope. How do you argue that? Until you read the scriptures. And I mean, Peter would deny it before anybody else. I can't be in charge of the church. I might be an apostle. But basically, we're all apostles. The word apostles, we're going to see, is a messenger for Christ. A representative of Christ. 
And each one of us have that responsibility. But thou art Peter, small stone, Petros, and upon this rock, massive stone, Petra, I will build my church. And I thank the Lord for that. Let me give you a little more insight in the beautiful book of 1 Peter. We know that the author is Peter. The date of the writing is somewhere around 65, 67 A.D. Listen to the theme now. The theme of 1 Peter. Suffering and glory. Suffering and glory. And the early church went through great suffering. It's believed that the book of 1 Peter was written from Babylon. And a lot of people believe that that was a code name for Rome. Now we don't know. Another reference is in Revelation 18 when they speak of Babylon there. Many believe that that was also a code name for Rome. We don't know. Either way, the book was written, we know, by Peter. It was written to Christian Jews and Christian Gentiles that were scattered. And the word scattered, they were a part of this great diaspora, all because of their faith. And here's the purpose of 1 Peter, encouragement, encouragement. Now, James also wrote a general epistle, and he spoke about, you know, Christians and just the things that Christians, practical Christian living, what you go through every day. And they were also dispersed. But Peter takes it to the next level. Listen, suffering and glory is going to be part of your life. And it was. The early church suffered greatly. The first 300 years, it's estimated that some 6 million were killed because they professed. Listen, Christianity. Is there persecution today? And the answer is yes. Now, Peter was also considered the apostle of grace. When you study First and Second Peter, you're going to find the word grace at least 10 times. Unmerited favor. And Peter learned to appreciate that. Each one of us, we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest we should boast. And his amazing grace. You see, I deserve judgment. So do you. But he gives me his grace. He gives you... Uh, he gives you the same grace. Unmerited favor. Oh, I love that. Now, let me just give you some insight before we get into verse 1. Suffering and glory. I took this out of one of my commentaries. Christians were now undergoing increasingly an intense suffering for their faith. The early church needed instructions and encouragement in the light of their suffering. The early church needed to understand that suffering was a normal part of Christian life and that it was a way to relate to the suffering of Jesus, which Peter had witnessed personally. He saw the suffering of Christ. Listen to the words of Jesus here. In John chapter 16, verse 33, this is what Jesus said. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace, in the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. I'm thinking about this situation of suffering and glory. Right now, the Campo family in our church is understanding this firsthand. Suffering and glory. Little did Lupe know that her husband would be taken on Friday. 
Little did the children know, and one of them, an older daughter with a baby, they didn't know that dad was going to be gone. They're all waiting, anticipating Sunday is Mother's Day. Little Isaiah is sitting in the hospital room right now. I don't think they've told him yet. They're kind of scared. They don't know what to tell him. But sooner or later, that little boy is going to say, where's dad? I want to see my daddy. I was with him in the truck. I remember now. Talk about suffering and glory. How do you tell a 10-year-old? It's going to hurt. This is where we come in, the body of Christ, and we pray. How many were suffering and glory in the time of the New Testament? How many were killed? We know the stories that how they went into the arenas and they would take children, imagine this, and they would take the skins of lambs and they would put them on the kids and the kids were thinking that it was a game. They would teach them. We've read this in the historical writings. And the little kids would just run around, jumping around, thinking that they were a little lamb. And the smell of the fleece that was on them, they would release the tigers or the wild animals. They would just tear up these children. And many times this was done in the view of those in the stadium. And then what about the parents? And then we're Christian. And I'm serving Jesus. And this is what's going on. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, if you've never had the opportunity, study the seven churches of Asia Minor. We will get to them eventually when we get to the book of Revelation. Jesus instructs seven letters to be written to seven churches in Asia Minor. Actual seven churches. You can go in the back of your study Bibles and you see the maps. And you have the church at Ephesus. But when you come to the church at Smyrna, the church at Ephesus was a, a loveless church. They lost their first love for Christ after about 40 years span. But when you came to the church at Smyrna, listen to this. They were called the persecuted church. And they grew leaps and bounds. The persecuted church always produces fruit through their trial. It's a, it's a hard concept to grasp. You mean through my suffering I'm going to draw closer to God? Yes. Through my hardship, through my pain? Yes. I believe the Campo family will never be the same after this. You have two choices when you go through your trials. We can run to God or we can run from God. The church at Smyrna was given a unique name. The word Smyrna came from the myrrh plant. That myrrh plant still exists today in the Middle East. It's a nothing plant when you see it. Very simple look. It looks like a brush. But when you take that plant and they would put it into this basin and they would take these, these wooden mallets and they would smash it. And the Greek tells us that the more you punished the myrrh plant, the greater the fragrance. The early church, the more they were punished, the more they were martyred for their faith, the greater the church rose. In fact, there's accounts by Josephus that in these arenas, when the Christians were dying and the people that were in the stands were cheering on the animals and the gladiators, eventually it was getting to their hearts because these people were dying for the Lord. And it would get a hold of them. 
and many that would die in the arena, many more out in the audience were coming to saving grace because of their testimony. And yet they knew that maybe they would be next now because they've accepted Christ. When they crucified Jesus, the early church thought, well, if they killed our Messiah, they're going to kill us too. Suffering has always been part of the church. And so Peter begins to lay this beautiful uh, presence to them, our heavenly inheritance, even if we die. Let's go to 1 Peter now. Chapter 1, verse 1. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims. He says, of the dispersion, or the great diaspora, and look at where they were at. And Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter called an apostle here. The word apostle, apostolos, is an ambassador or a representative of Christ. That's us. We might not be called an apostle, but you're a Christian. The word Christian, you're Christ-likeness. We are representations of Christ. People should see Christ in us. Your witness should be your life. We were taught way back in the early days when we came to Saving Grace, God changes your life. If you used to curse, he takes that away. If you used to drink heavily, he takes that away. If you were into sexual perversion, he takes that away. Change has to take place. Most of us, when we came to Saving Grace, we really did not have true agape love. God places that love in us. It only comes through a relationship. And so, listen to what Peter is saying here. He's an apostle, an ambassador, representative of Christ. And he's writing to the pilgrims. And this word pilgrims, they were alien residents or resident foreigners. And you can imagine they're no longer in their own country. The King James uses the word that they were strangers. These are the Jews and the Gentile Christians now scattered abroad by the great diaspora. Paul, we know, listen, was the apostle to the Gentiles. But Peter, again, I go back to his, his uh, occupation. He was a simple fisherman. And yet he was a, called the apostle to the Jews. Paul was more learned. Paul studied under the best teachers uh, in Israel. And Paul tried to go to the Jews. The Jews usually rejected him. They would beat him, chase him out of the city. But Peter went to the Jews, and they accepted him. And they listened to him. But Paul went out to the Gentiles. It's just so beautiful how God sets it up. Now, Peter was called a minister to the Jews. And what would he minister but the grace of God? Now, Peter mentions to those in the diaspora, they were scattered to Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia Minor, and Bithynia. And you go back into your maps and your study Bibles, you see all these places. Yet how could Peter do this unschooled? He had the power of the Holy Spirit that we pick up back in Acts chapter 2. Now, listen to who Peter's writing to. In verse 2, the elected ones. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And I love this. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. In verse 2, Peter clarifies. 
who the epistle was sent to, who the letter was written to, to the elect of God. The word elect, the chosen ones of Israel. Now this is Jew and Gentile. You see, each one of us, I believe, are the elect of God. If you're here this morning, you're the elect of God. You're the chosen ones. You're the ones that God has foreknowledge of. You're the predestined ones. You see, predestination is the sovereignty of God. And I thank the Lord. There are those that struggle with election. There are those that struggle with predestination. Well, I don't have a choice then. Yes, you do. God has placed in us. We are free moral agents. We are free moral agents to choose, listen, or to reject God. Imagine going to heaven one day, and then you stand there and you argue with God. I didn't choose to be here. Yes, you did. Or you would not be here. Or you're in hell and you say, wait a minute, I didn't choose that. Yes, you did. Because you rejected Christ, you chose hell. And people don't understand that. But honestly, church, I am so grateful that God has chosen me. I'm not boasting of that. I am so grateful God has chosen you. Now, somebody might say, well, Pastor Bob, how do I know I'm chosen? Because you're hearing the message. But I haven't come to saving grace yet. Well, then choose God. You see, the ball's in our court. God sent his son to die on the cross for us. He becomes the mercy seat. The Bible says that Jesus is the propitiation for my sin. The word propitiation, he's the mercy seat. He died in my place. He died in your place. And so here's Peter writing to those that are scattered, and he tells them, you're the elected ones. According, listen to what he says, to the foreknowledge of Christ. The word is prognosis, uh, two words, the foreknowledge that the Father God knew beforehand, those that would be saved. Saved in sanctification, hagiosimos, means they were set apart for God. How were they set apart? In verse 2, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we are chosen, elected by the Father and how are we set apart into salvation? Again, by the Holy Spirit. And the purpose for the obedience and the sprinkling of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We deserve judgment, but he gives us grace, unmerited favor. I tell you, I have struggled with that in time past. How can I have God's grace? How can I have God's mercy? This is how much God loves us. How much God loves you, that he died for you. He sent his son for you. He paid the full price for you, church. I am chosen. I am elected. You are chosen. You are elected. It all works through the power of the Holy Spirit. I deserve judgment, but he gives me grace. I want you to listen to these two verses. In Romans chapter 8, Verses 29 and 30. I'm going to read out of the New Living Translation. Uh, notice how Paul speaks of election. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn with many brothers and sisters. That's you and I when we come to Christ. 
In verse 30, and having chosen them, he called them to come to him, and he gave them right standing with himself, and he promised them his glory. This is that beautiful, heavenly inheritance. Again, how do I know that I'm included? Because honestly, I've met people that struggle with this. How do I know? Uh, this is a simple text. I want you to listen again. In John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, we should all know this. The scripture reads, and these are the words of Christ, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Again, that eternal life, this heavenly inheritance. Verse 17, For God did not send uh, his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God did not come to condemn, but he came to die as a meek lamb. You see, the Jewish believers had a, a hard time. They were waiting for Messiah. But they were waiting for Messiah that was going to come and rid them from the oppression of Rome. Rome was heavy upon the early church. And they figured Messiah's coming. He's going to set us free. He's going to set up the kingdom age. But they missed the scriptures. The Old Testament scriptures said that Messiah would come to die as a meek lamb. That he would open his mouth and say nothing. He would die on the cross to give us life, life eternal. Who is this election for? For God so loved the world. It's a universal call. All we have to do is respond to that universal call. I don't struggle with election. And if you struggle with election, then accept him. If you're not sure, well, how do I know? Has he accepted? Has he called? Yes, he has. Turn around and accept him. We have to anyway. Everything is placed before us. But the free gift of life is not yours, it's not mine, until I accept Christ. There's a gift waiting for you at Christmas time. It's wrapped real beautiful, nice paper, nice ribbon, and it has your name on it. And somebody in the family hands it to you on, on Christmas morning. Or you might, you know, open the gifts on Christmas Eve, whatever, you know, the tradition at your house. But it's still not yours till you open it. Now listen to this. You open it and you don't like it. Oh, it's that tie I gave away three years ago. <laughs> and it still has that same eye in the middle, but they colored it. They think I don't know. But it's not yours till you open it. Now you put it on. But the problem is your daughter gave it to you. And then your daughter says, Dad, you haven't worn my tie. Honey, I'm going to wear it Sunday. And you don't like it, but you're going to wear it. And people are going to say, what's that eye? Hey, my daughter gave me this. I took the free gift. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But we have to take the gift. And then we run with that gift. And before you know it, you are sharing that gift with so many others. Now, Peter's done with the introduction. And now he tells us about this heavenly inheritance. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again. Now the King James, and uh, I mean, they just like to lay things out 
and we have to translate. He has begotten us again. Speaks of being born again of the Holy Spirit. He's begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if there's no resurrection, we are all men and women most miserable. Jesus died, was buried, but he rose again on the third day. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, over 500 witnessed the risen Christ. He has begotten us again. We're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so here, Paul, or excuse me, Peter is speaking in verse 3, Honor and glory to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ by His boundless mercy that God has given us the privilege. Listen, it's the privilege of being born again, begotten us again. You see, we're born once in this flesh. We need to be born again by the Spirit. Now we live with a wonderful expectation because Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. And I want you to pay attention. If we're born again of the Holy Spirit, here is the promise. We have a heavenly inheritance waiting for us. We have eternal life waiting for us. There's a lot of people that I've shared with through the years in a personal relationship I'll share with them. Listen, the Bible says you need to be born again. A lot of people struggle with that. Well, I was water baptized. I said, that's not enough. Well, I belong to a church. My name is on a ledger. I'm sorry, but that's not enough. Well, you know, my mom and dad uh, are strong Christians. Praise the Lord. But what about your relationship? In fact, I have an uncle and an aunt that are missionaries. Praise the Lord for your aunt and uncle. What about your relationship? You see, there's a personal relationship, and it comes through the born-again experience. It's interesting. On your own, when you go home this evening, if you've never studied the Gospel of John, chapter 3, this beautiful dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus was of the Pharisees. Nicodemus was of the Sanhedrin, and he comes to Jesus by night because he feared his peers, and he asked Jesus a simple question. What must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus kind of rebuked him. Nicodemus, you're a ruler of the Jews. You should know these things. But then he says, Nick, you must be born again. I want you to study and just meditate on it, in John chapter 3, verse 3, John chapter 3 again, verse 7, Jesus says to Nicodemus twice, Nicodemus, you must be born again. There has to be change. There has to be transformation. And there has to be the evidence of change. There's a beautiful, there's a beautiful brother in our church, and I watched him grow through the ranks here. I mean, he was a little kid in the back, and then eventually he was in the youth group. And then, uh, you know, he moved on to adulthood, and we didn't see him at church for a while. But the conviction of the Holy Spirit was always there. He'd come into church periodically. His parents were praying for him and such. And I'd make an altar call, and he'd get saved again. We'd have a water baptism, and, and he would get water baptized again. And honestly, we baptized him about six times. And he asked me, this is through the years, he asked me, 
aren't you ever going to get tired of baptizing me? I said, no. Aren't you going to get tired of me raising my hand on a Sunday morning every other year, every two, every three? I said, no. I said, my prayer is that one day it's going to take. And you know what? We married them right here, him and his, his fiance, and they're doing great now, and they're serving the Lord. But if I would have said, nope, I'm not going to listen to you no more. Don't be raising your hand no more. I baptized you enough. The water's filthy. Get out of here. I don't want to. He would have never come back. Hey, I'll put you under the water as many times as you want. But that's still not going to save you. The heart has to change. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man, if any woman be in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things become new. There has to be change. Metamorphosis. Transformation. Regeneration. You don't like the born-again experience? There better be change. And I'll tell you what. Your spouse, wife, or husband, they will know that you've changed. They'll see it. Your children, they will know that you've changed. Your co-workers, they'll look at you. They say, are you working out? Are you eating right? There's something different about you. I'm going to church, man. <laughs> You're a Jesus freak. Yes, I'm born again of the Holy Spirit. And then they're going to watch you. And this is what Peter is saying. Oh, salvation is a beautiful gift of God. And then what follows. Now we're saved here, but the time is coming. And, you know, Manny Campos knows that now. Our heavenly, it's waiting for us. Inheritance. Now look at verse 4. What type of promise do we have? He's called us to that begotten us again, born again experience. What kind of promise do we have? Look at verse 4. An inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that does not fade away. I love that. And then he says, reserved in heaven for you. It's waiting for us, church. What kind of inheritance is waiting? I'm doing pretty good here now. You're doing pretty good here now. But this is just a taste. Imagine what we have waiting for us. What is the word inheritance? It's heirship, patrimony. Listen to this word, possession. One day we're going to have these possessions. But I like the word inheritance is a promise of things to come. Peter says that are incorruptible, they're undecaying, undefiled, unsoiled. They're pure, they're clean, they're righteous, they're holy. This body's getting old, your body's getting old. But when we get to heaven... We're going to put on a new body that is undecaying. Here is the promise of this inheritance. It's not going to fade away, church. It's not going to fade away. Uh, If you look in the mirror every day, you see the same person, and, and you don't change, but run into somebody you haven't seen for a long time. My wife recently went to their 40 year anniversary for high school. And everybody looked at each other. They didn't know each other. And then at the end, oh, you look the same. You're a liar. Nobody looks the same. All the guys are fat and bald, and all the women have painted their hair so many different colors. It's incredible. Change happens, like it or not. You know, gravity only does one thing. Boom, it goes down. We are going to fade away. 
But the promise, listen, church, the promise of inheritance, it does not fade away. It is unfading. He says, because it's reserved. Listen to the word reserved. Because it's preserved and waiting for us in heaven. The promise of my heavenly inheritance. Now, the Amplified Bible says this. Remember, we're speaking about earlier the born-again experience. Born anew now into an inheritance, a promise, which is beyond the reach of change and decay, imperishable, unsullied, unfading, reserved in heaven, preserved for you. Oh, I like that. Don't think we're going to keep these bodies the rest of our lives. These bodies are temporals. They're just temporal. We're sojourners. We're pilgrims. We're passing through. And that's not taken away from our body. We, we need to take care of it as much as possible. The doctor says, don't do this, don't do that. We need to listen or we're going to be in the grave early. But these bodies will decay. They will fade away. But our heavenly bodies, they're forever. Now, I want you to read this passage with me. We've read it many times over. Go to Matthew chapter 6. Because so many times we put... All our eggs in one basket, as they say. And I'm not taking away from your 401k. I'm not taking away from your savings account, your checking account. I believe that we have to use wisdom. But I tell you what, the day could easily come. Well, finally, I've reached the age. And now I'm going to get Social Security. And imagine going up and filing the papers and they tell you, sorry, there's no more Social Security. But I put in all those years. I know. Well, then I'll go to my 401k. Oh, listen, the economy is so bad, everything's gone. What do you mean it's gone? It could so easily happen. Uh, but look, listen to what Jesus says. Matthew 6, look at verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal it. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. He says, where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then Jesus hits the nail on the head. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. A couple of years back when the Dow Jones and, you know, what goes on there in New York and all that, we don't really understand it unless you're, that's your game, unless that's what you went to school for. But, you know, we put money in 401ks and we put money in savings and we put money in, in things that are supposedly being invested for us. And hopefully when we get our age, we're going to have something to fall back on. One of my wife's friends, she comes and says, I just found out that I lost $48,000. Now, that's a lot of money for somebody that's been saving and waiting for retirement. Are you going to get it back? I don't know. To this day, that was a couple years back. She still hasn't made it back up. She was banking on that. She's getting ready to retire. She's going to be $48,000 short. Now, there are some that are rich enough and they can afford that, but if there's some like her, that was everything for her. It's hard. And so listen to what Jesus said. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We better put everything 
in Christ. I'm not telling you not to save. We have a savings. We have a 401k. But my treasure is in heaven. I hope your treasure is in heaven also. Now, let's go back to our text. Look at verse 5. These chosen ones, you, me, the church, the body of Christ. Listen to what he says. The chosen ones, basically, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time or the last days. I was recently asked this question, and I've been asked before, but it really stirred up my heart because I was doing this study. I was recently asked, if we are Christian, listen, if we're born again of the Holy Spirit, can I lose my salvation? I think I've heard that question asked uh, throughout the years of my 30 years experience. You need to read this verse closely. You need to read this verse prayerfully. I'm going to break it down in the Greek. Peter, through the Holy Spirit, says, we are kept. Listen, the word is guarded, protected by the power. The word power is dunamis, the dynamic power of the Holy Spirit of God through faith for salvation. So ready, listen, to be revealed, to be revealed. The word revealed, to have the cover taken off, to be disclosed, to be unwrapped in the last days. We will stand before our maker, and he will give us our complete inheritance. That's why we call the study this heavenly inheritance. Oh, I've inherited Christ now. I have inherited his salvation now. He has set me free now. But I'm waiting to be glory bound. This body is going to fade away. And one day he will give me a new body. I can't get to heaven with this body. Neither can you. Our dear friend Manny has that new body. He's with the Lord now. His spirit and soul, his body's dead. It's here on earth. His wife's either going to bury it or cremate it. But that's not Manny. The same with you. That won't be you. But your spirit and soul go to be with the Lord. Now, how do I know this will happen, Pastor Bob? The promise of the Holy Spirit. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Go to chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Well, I've made the sinner's prayer. And let's go back to that young man that's now married. Well, I was baptized six or seven or eight times. I made a confession of faith of almost the same amount, six or seven or eight times. How do I know? When the time comes that you make that commitment, because from 1976 to 1979, I made several commitments to the Lord, but it wasn't until June the 3rd of 1979, I can honestly tell you that Christ came into my life. But I had said the sinner's prayer several times. But listen to the promise here. Ephesians chapter 1, look at verse 13. In him you, are, you also trusted, speaking of Christ, after you heard the word of truth. What's the word of truth? The gospel of your salvation. In whom also, having believed, now that's faith, you were sealed, sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. In the time of the New Testament, when they would send a letter, they would close it, and they would take a piece of... Uh, they had a signet ring. 
And that signet ring had your emblem on it of your, of your family. And they would take this piece of wax and they would melt it right onto the seal of this document and then they would place their stamp of approval on it. And then whoever picked it up at the next place, they would see the mark and then you would show your family mark. The Holy Spirit of promise is the seal that God places upon you he places upon me. He says here, in verse 14, this promise, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption or the purchase back of possession to the praise of his glory. One day, we are glory bound. Hopefully, it's the rapture of the church. If not, the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, then the judgment. But the Holy Spirit of promise is on us already. There is a seal upon us. God has a scanner, let's put it that way. And you're going to go by that scanner and be, yep, he's one of mine. I'm just giving you my interpretation there. <laughs> but how can I lose my salvation? If I'm truly born again of the Holy Spirit. Now, on your own, I want you to study this when you get home. In John chapter 15, the gospel, the most beautiful teaching that Jesus brought forth to his disciples. He teaches on the vine and the branches. He says, you are the vine, I am the branches. And you go through that whole teaching, and you're going to bring forth fruit. Now, Jesus says something that always has blessed me. He says, in John chapter 15, if you abide in me, I will abide in you. When you see the word if, it's conditional. You have to do something. If you abide in me, I will abide in you. If you look at the word abide, it means to stay. If you stay in me, I will stay in you. That's the promise of the Holy Spirit. Oh, we're going to go through our trials and our hardships. We're going to go through, you know, all the pain. But if we're in Christ, he's in us. Didn't Jesus promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you? And then I thank the Lord for the parable of the lost sheep. He left the 99 and he went after the one that was lost. I love the teaching of the prodigal son. That's you and I. Sometimes we go and we squander everything. And then our heavenly father goes and looks for us, waits for us, anticipates the earthly father waited for the prodigal son, and when he came back, he said, my son is back. Kill the fatted calf. Put a robe on him. Put a signet ring on him. Remember the other brother? He got jealous. You've never killed a fatted lamb or a fatted cow for me, Dad. Your son, your brother, that is, was lost, now has been found. If you abide in me, I will abide in you. In John chapter 15, you're going to bring forth fruit. He says fruit, more fruit, much fruit. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 27, he speaks about the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit begins with love. God places his agape love in you, divine love. You cannot acquire agape love. We have eros and we have phileo. We can easily attract those. But agape... Is from the Lord. Divine love. I love that. Now he just continues with them so beautifully. Look at verses 6 and 7 now. In this 
He says, in this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a, a little while, if need be, you have been grieved. Listen, by various trials. Rejoice, be glad. This is a wonderful joy ahead, Peter's telling him. Even though it is necessary for you to endure the many trials for a while. I don't like trials. I don't like hardship. I don't like pain. But it's part of my life. It's part of your life. The Bible says, if Jesus suffered, I'm going to suffer. We read about our brother Job, chapters 1 and 2. He lost everything. And his wife said, curse the God that you serve. And Job responds, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Peter takes it another step. Look at verse 7. That the genuineness or the reality of your faith being much more precious. Listen, your faith is much more precious than gold that's going to perish, though it is tested by the fire. May be found to the praise and honor and glory at the time of the revelation or the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Peter's reminding us, your faith in God is real. It's genuine. It's more precious, listen, costly, valuable than gold. Gold's going to perish. Right now, gold is going out of bounds. The, the price of gold is incredible. Sooner or later, it's going to fall. And all those people that have paid so much, they're going to have nothing. Gold is tried by the fire. Our trials, many times, were tried by the fire. Your salvation will be found unto praise, unto honor, unto glory when the time of the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ at the second coming or at the rapture of the church or you died in Christ. Our inheritance is waiting for us. We are going to suffer. Second Timothy, write it down. Chapter 3, verse 12. Paul tells Timothy, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, listen to this, will suffer persecution. I tell you, when I first started to find out about trials, I did not like that part of Christianity. But as I studied the church at Smyrna, the greater the church became because of the suffering. The greater you become in Christ because of your trials, your suffering. Many times God is chipping away the old man, the old woman uh, through the trials. In James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, remember what James says, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith will produce patience. When I first heard that, count it all joy? You know, just using the example, I go out and I'm ready to go to church. I don't have one flat tire, I have four flat tires. Count it all joy? And then I said, well, okay, I'll, I'll buy it. I'll go in my wife's car, turn around. She has four flat tires. Now you're counting it all joy? It's building patience in us. When I did a study on the word patience, through the trials, God is building patience. You look at the word patience, he's building strength, He's building stamina. He's building character. He's building a foundation. He's teaching us to persevere. I know it's hard to understand, but Job was a better man, a better Christian after his suffering. 
Peter was a better man after his suffering. The list just goes down the line. Study Hebrews chapter 11. It's called the faith chapter. And as you go through all these heroes of faith, the women were included. I always think of Mary Magdalene, the woman that Jesus cast out seven demons. I'll tell you what, her life was transformed. And she followed Jesus the rest of her life. Cast out seven demons. Lord, I'm going to follow you. Interesting, Jesus heals ten lepers, but only one leper follows him. Not everybody's going to follow the Lord. Look at verse 8. And this is speaking about the believers. Listen to this. Whom having not seen, you love. We've not seen Christ, but we love him. Though now you do not see him yet, Believing, there's where our faith comes in. You rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. And so Peter is saying, Jesus whom you have never seen. And that is so true. But you believe. How do we believe, church? We believe by faith. We believe by faith. Yet we love him. And we rejoice in Christ with joy that is indescribable. I cannot describe The joy of being a Christian. Oh, there's trials. I'm not going to take away from that. But I've been in the world. You've been in the world. The joy of the Lord is no match. How many times on Monday morning you swore you were never going to drink again? Until next week, right? How many times you swore, you know what? This is the last time I'm going to smoke a joint. Until next time your friends come over. This is the last time, and you fill in the blank. But we could not get away from it until Christ came into our lives, until the power of the Holy Spirit came into my life. And I can't explain that. And that's what Peter is saying. That's indescribable, the power of God. I'm filled with his glory. I have never seen Christ, Peter is saying. I know some of you have never seen Christ, but I have witnessed his work. I have seen God change lives. I have seen God change the drug addict, the alcoholic, the sexual pervert. God is in the life-changing business. Listen, you might say, I was never any of those things. We're all liars. God changes a liar. God changes a liar. The Bible says no liar is going to get into the kingdom of God. He changes us. That's the power of God. And then he goes on, look at verse 9. Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls, and so the receiving or the getting to the end of your faith. And this is that eternal life. I'm saved now, but eternal life is waiting for me. Peter is saying, a present and a future reference. In their love of and their faith in Jesus Christ, they have him who is salvation and joy. One day, church complete inheritance. One day, we are all going to be glory-bound with Jesus Christ forever. Now, he comes to the conclusion, and Peter speaks about the prophets of old. We have our completed Bible here. We have the 66 books. We have the 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. We have the completed book. And we have Christ that has died and resurrected 
and he sits at the right hand of the God, the Father, and he makes intercession for us. We have all this. We have it in Scripture. We believe by faith. The Holy Spirit has come. But what about the early church? They, they don't have the complete Bible yet. What about the prophets of the Old Testament? They don't even have the Messiah yet. They were writing of promises and prophecies yet to come, but they believed by faith. Watch this now. And we continue here, verse 10. He says, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. I want you to think about it. The prophets listened to the Holy Spirit. They searched it out carefully. They had to have prayed. And then they wrote out God's plan of salvation. Yet they really did not understand it. They stepped out by faith. Watch this now, verse 11. Searching what? Or what manner of time? The Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the suffering of Christ and the glories that would follow. The idea of salvation was made available through a suffering Messiah was foreign to them. How could they understand that? Indeed, to all the Jews especially, it was a mystery. They knew the Old Testament prophecies. Now we know them today, and we see them fulfilled. I cannot read Isaiah 53 without knowing and believing by faith that the one that's suffering in Isaiah 53 is Jesus. I look at Psalm 22, the suffering Savior. Who are they talking about? It's Christ. But here's the prophets. They're writing. Isaiah's writing. The psalmist David, many times he's the psalm writer. He's writing. Suffering Savior? The Messiah, he would die on the cross? He comes as a meek lamb? He doesn't come to rid the oppression of Rome? How did they understand all these things? And many times they did not understand them. They wrote about the trials. We go through them. James writes of them. Now Peter's writing of them. Always remember this. We've studied it many times. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I have to go back to it many times. No temptation, no trial has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful. I like that. Who will not allow you to be tempted, tested beyond what you are able but with the testing, with the temptation, will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. You may be able to bear it. Now, I can look back hindsight and some of the trials I've been through. But at the time, I'm convinced in my heart I'm not going to make it. I told the first service, I had a trial about 10 years ago that was powerful. A gentleman came against me, came against the church. And I actually thought I was having a heart attack. I've never had a heart attack. I don't know what a heart attack feels. But my heart was burning and hurting heavily. I thought it was a heart attack. But it was a stress. And it was just the oppression of what I was going through. I thought I was going to die, honestly. And I know now it was just a trial that was just getting a hold of you. And it won't let go. And then the enemy just presses and pushes. And basically, you have to surrender. And I did. A couple of days later, I just finally said, hey, whatever happens, happens. Lord, I'm, I'm your charge. 
I'm your charge. I can't take care of this problem. It's your problem. It's your problem. When the Lord told Jehoshaphat back in the Old Testament, Jehoshaphat, the battle's not yours, but the battle belongs to the Lord. Jehoshaphat looked at the armies that were against Israel. He said, we're outnumbered. God told him, I will sustain you. Don't raise your hands, but how many of us God has sustained us through the years, but we're convinced at that time, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. And yet we're here to tell about it even today. He concludes now. Remember, the Old Testament prophets are writing all this, and they're not understanding. Daniel was no different. We'll get to that in just a minute. In verse 12, to them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us. They were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you. He says, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels, listen to this, desire to look into. The prophets were writing about the things that were to come. Salvation, Messiah. Messiah would die on the cross. Trials would be part of your life. And then salvation, the angels didn't even understand it. You know, the Bible says that an angel rejoices over one that's saved. But yet they don't understand. They were created by God for God. But yet there was a third of them that rebelled, so they had choice too. But imagine not understanding salvation. That's why they rejoice. Okay, God saved them. Praise the Lord. Rejoice when you were saved. They rejoiced when I was saved. But these were things that they wrote by the power of the Spirit, not understanding. And now James has already told those in the great diaspora. Peter's now telling the other group, uh, the same people, maybe the other group, they're all reading the same letter. Eventually, they're going to glean, glean over it. You're going to go through trials. Now, Daniel wrote about the last days. I want you to listen to it. Write it down. Daniel chapter 12, the end of the book, verses 8 and 9. In verse 8, he says, Although I heard, I did not understand. Then I said, My Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And the Lord responded, verse 9, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Church, we have our complete Bible. In fact, we've studied the book of Daniel. It's a very prophetic book. It's a powerful book. And now we had just studied the book of James. We know what James was, was teaching about. Now, we mentioned John chapter 3. We know exactly what Jesus was teaching Nicodemus. You must be born again. And now we're going to study Peter. And Peter says, listen, you're part of the great scattering, but you're going to survive. There's a great inheritance waiting for you. But it's not going to be without trial. We are all going to face our particular trials. But again, joy, James says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, testings in your life. You know, my early days, I would read that and I would inside I'd go, James, you count it all joy. I don't like it. But yet God sustains us, church. We're still here. And we're still alive in planet Earth. And God has still called us to testify of his great love. 
Let's all stand, and we'll end with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace and your love and your mercy. Father, we stand in awe of your presence, and we stand in awe of the power of your Holy Spirit that leads us and guides us into all truth. Lord, I pray this morning that each one of us have made a, a, a commitment to Christ. We spoke about election, predestination, chosen, called. And Lord, this morning I pray that each one of us are believers. And if not, today is the day of your salvation. I want to give you that opportunity. Maybe somebody's here this morning, you never accepted Christ. Today is that day. You'd like to receive Christ, raise your hand right there where you're at. I'll say a simple prayer of faith with you. I'm not going to ask you to come up, but right there where you're at. If you'd like to say the sinner's prayer real quick, raise your hand. We're not here to embarrass anybody. Then if we are all Christian, praise God, let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for this opportunity, for your precious word, your word that will not come back void. And I pray, Lord, again, if there's somebody here, they've never received you, and maybe it's hard to grasp, maybe it's hard to understand, or maybe it's hard to relinquish and say, yes, that's me. Lord, you touch them, you speak to them. And Father, the rest of us, encourage us. Maybe some of us have been backslidden. Bring us back to, your, to that first love, which is Christ. Father, bless each and every one here this morning. And again, we celebrate Mother's Day. Bless them and anoint them. And it's in Jesus' precious name. We pray for the offerings. We ask you to bless the offerings as you've given to us. This is our opportunity. We give back some. Jesus, bless the offerings. In your name, amen.